Good morning, Gateway family. Welcome to church. Welcome online if you're joining us online. If you've been here the last few weeks, we know that we have started doing something at at the very top of each service just to get our, our eyes fixed and our hearts centered on God's word, on his promises, and why we are here today. Uh, And so we're going to start off with the reading of God's word. If you will stand, Ms. Robin is going to read Psalm 32 for us and prepare our hearts. Good morning, Gateway. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was a heavy one on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all whose hearts are pure. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can come to you in complete honesty, Lord. That you are the creator of the universe, savior of the world, and our friend, Lord. And you replace our sin and guilt with forgiveness and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. So good to see you. I love seeing everyone on Sunday morning. It's my favorite day of the week. Um, Today we we conclude our series that we started in January called Rock Solid Series. The idea of where we build our faith, where we build our life. Um, Ending today um, with how the context in which we were raised uh, impacts the way we hear and see and share this. Word. That's my Bible. If you can't tell, I guess I got to turn it that way. Um, and also, then, um, what are the contexts in which we engage God through this word? Um, next Sunday, I begin a series that we're calling "Wearing Dust," wearing dust, walking in the life-changing ways of Jesus. It's he's more. Um, he, there's more involved with Christ than than just learning precepts, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, here, here has been, here, this has been our foundational passage of Scripture for these seven weeks, and in, in essence for where we're going as a body, even for the year, out of Luke 6, 47 through 49. I'll read it to you out of the NIV. It's on the NIV and the board. I encourage you, if you brought your Bibles, 
Um, you can look there and see whatever version you have. But this is the seventh consecutive week I've read this passage of Scripture, and I'll, I'll kind of tell you why in a minute after I read it for the seventh time. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And that has been what we've been building off of for all seven weeks. Um, why read it seven times? Um, repetition is what allows these kind of truths to seep deep into your soul. Repetition is a foundational learning practice. In fact, you see the iconic basketball coach of UCLA, Coach John Wooden, who won like 11 championships in 12 years, he had this to say about um, what he called, what he dubbed as the eight laws of learning. Right? He said the four laws of learning are explanation, demonstration, imitation, and repetition. The goal is to create a correct habit that can be produced instinctively under great pressure. To make sure this goal was achieved, I created eight laws of learning, namely explanation, demonstration, imitation, repetition, 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 and repetition. If there was still considered, to this day, still considered one of the best educators and one of the best coaches in history, uh, our faith and Israel's faith was rooted on repetition. Remembrance, repetition, things that get passed from generation to generation through what? Through demonstration, through imitation, through repetition. Right? So but before I describe the context in which we engage the word of God, I feel it's necessary to do a little bit about the cultural context that we sit in because the cultural context in which we sit in impacts how we receive the word of God. All right, so context is everything when it comes to understanding God's word. But many times we neglect understanding our culture that we're in and how that impacts how we receive the word. It's kind of like when you have an app on your phone that's not open, but it's running in the background. Our culture is always running in the background on how we will see and how we perceive and how we will share the word. So mankind throughout its history consistently looks for wholeness, fulfillment, purpose, and peace, but in most contexts, looks for those things outside of the walls of Christianity. So these attempts turn into philosophies that mark large swaths of history, and each shift is a reaction to the failures of the previous prevailing thought and pattern. Um, so I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a history teacher, but I'm going to try to explain briefly some of the big shifts of thinking that's gone on and how it has shaped that generation and other generations to how they receive, how we receive the word. So you go back to the 1600s and it's the beginning of the scientific revolution, okay? So the scientific revolution is the introduction of the scientific method and then everything, everything rests on science. Science is the big answer. Science and the pursuit of science will produce the wholeness and the fulfillment and the purpose and the peace that we're all looking for. Science will hold those answers. Well, I love science. I don't think the Bible and science contradict one another. I think each new discovery shows us how magnificent God really is, right? Like, you thought of that? You know, it's kind of what I get when I, when I, see, when I watch my National Geographic channels. 
But again, each prevailing thought ends up losing, it, it ends up not being able to produce what it promises. So a next kind of wave has to come and try to answer that which was left behind by the previous. So coming out of the scientific revolution, we enter what's known as the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment then was introducing uh, art and literature and things back into this equation of how we find fulfillment and wholeness and meaning. Um, it's also known as the age of reason. And so this, this, lasted, this lasted several centuries as well, but as the same as the scientific revolution, there still, it still came up empty. It still could not produce the fulfillment and the meaning that people were looking for in life. And this gave rise to what is known as the modern age or modernity, where we then, um, we took it's not that we disregarded the scientific revolution or the enlightenment, but because those came up empty, here comes a new attempt, and that new attempt known as modernity um, really didn't attach itself to too many of historic norms. It believed that then the, the, the way to meaning and the way forward and fulfillment is going to have to be carved out and found in a new way. Um, now, through modern culture's influence, here's what's happened. The modern cultural influenced Christianity by demystifying God and distilled the Bible into a set of beliefs, uh, belief statements and precepts. The modern church reduced Christianity into a rational, logical, bite-sized life system. It elevated reason, albeit biblical reason, over relationship. It wanted a God that could be understood, managed, and explained. The modern church did a great job framing Christianity to a modern culture. But what's happened is the same thing that the scientific revolution couldn't deliver on, that the enlightenment couldn't deliver on, modernity couldn't deliver on, is meaning and fulfillment just out of this logic-based system. Once we separate God from his word, once we separate an interaction with the personhood of God, and, and it's just perceptual, and it's intellectual, we demystify who God is. And here's what happens. We, we then interpret God through our own lens. Right? So we'll read this and go, well, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. It's because we are trying to see God through our lens instead of seeing God through his lens. And so what now has been given rise over the last... I don't know, probably in our, at least on the Western, Western world, 60 years or so, um, but more prevalent now is known what is known as the postmodern culture. Okay, postmodern culture then ended up rejecting modern's view, modern culture's view of God and everything else, right? So what happens if you have painted God for centuries as the logical, it's all logical. It all can be boiled down to reason and, 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 and we can put God in a nice box and he's understandable. Um, and what happens then when we enter a world that is no longer understandable? See, we've, we've hit where there's a whole lot of gray area. And in modern culture, there's no gray area. It's, everything's just simple in its own boxes. And once you start exiting out of those boxes and, and you have, and the church has been and Christians have been in a box for centuries, now you have an explanation of why people leave God and leave church, especially younger they are, because they understand that this world isn't easy. There aren't easy, simple 
answers. And if we've spent our time trying to put God into a nice, easy, simple box, then you can see why, oh, well, then Christianity can't answer my questions around fulfillment and meaning because this is not easy. There aren't any easy answers, right? And so, so how we perceive, how we perceive God is always going to be somehow um, uh, influenced by the culture that runs behind us on however we've seen things. And God, what God is doing is inviting us to a much larger picture of who he is. That he's not just someone that can be boiled down into precepts and rules. Um, all right, so let me give you a, 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 a little bit of a nutshell of how post, a postmodern culture views Christ, the Bible, and Christianity, Okay. So postmodern thought rejects the idea of a central creation story. So evolution is a depersonal, relationally disconnected belief system that leads to a disconnected existence. But what is woven into our fabric of being? People long to be anchored and connected. So people long to be anchored and connected, and yet, and yet, the postmodern culture has rejected the idea that there is a single creation story. And what it, what, what they've had to replace it with something. And so it's been replaced, it's, it's replaced with evolution because here is a, at least an explanation of how we got here. But the deeper that you look into that, the more faith it takes to believe in this system than it does in this system, right? How does all of these right um, chemicals exist in a central place for some spark of energy, which can't be explained on how that happens, then create life in a single cell structure that over millions and millions and millions of years evolves to the place where we now have people that can understand the college playoff football system. It, it, you can't, it's, it's very difficult to make that jump. But if, but if that's my cultural mindset, then I buy into something that disconnects me from a beginning that we share. Postmodern culture also rejects the idea of a central story, that we all have a central story. You want to you see where racism and injustice pops up from? It's from this core system that we don't have a shared story. We don't have a shared story. Without a shared story, then we don't understand anything about sin or a fall from grace. Meaning then, there's no answers for why the world is in the condition it's in. Everyone's to blame and no one's to blame. Sin makes sense of the world's condition and paints a target on who is to blame. But if we don't have that central story, if we don't buy that central story, then we don't have... Um, a life that will make a lot of sense. People long for their lives in the world to make sense. This world will not make sense without an understanding of sin and a fall from grace. Doesn't make any sense. We, we'll, we can sit and pound the TV screen from here until the end of your day wondering why this is happening, why this is happening, why this is happening. And if we don't share this central story that there was a fall from grace, that this, this is why this is happening you can see an, a lost, untethered life. Postmodern thought also rejects the idea of uh, there's a central truth connected to a central person. We've learned this now in post-modernity, haven't we? Truth is individual. If truth is individual, that makes us egocentric. 
meaning that we are in the middle. All right, so then we define everything that there is around us. When, when there is no God central and we central, then we are the definer of all this stuff, right? So, but what happens is that posture, it neuters the idea of redemption and it eliminates hope. And people long for hope. We were woven to want hope. So post-modernity has been classified as a post, well, it's not a post-Christian stance. It's actually more encouraging than that. It is a pre-Christian stance. We've gone through most of what would be considered post-Christianity. Post-Christianity would be a rejection and a walking away from Christianity. We have entered a pre-Christian stance, which means these, if you've grown up in this culture in the last 20-some years is when it's really kind of populated itself, then this is encouraging to me because I get to start fresh with you. The preconceived failures of the past have given way to that past can't answer anything. It needs to come out of someplace new. And this is a great place for Christianity to thrive. I had a professor say that um, he would have rather been born during the Renaissance, um, but he's chosen this, this one because this is the one God chose to put him in. And he's the one that introduced me so much into the postmodern context. So what does that mean for us mostly if we've grown up in a modern context? Is that God is far deeper, far wider, far more relational, far more invitational, and far more imitational than modernity's boxes could contain. And God is inviting all of us to experience an out-of-box faith. There is more to this, folks, than just learning some things about God. There's more to this than just a few precepts to follow to try to smooth out our path. This is a living, breathing word. Now, it's interesting that phrase is used a lot towards our constitution these days, indicating that it evolves, so it changes as we change. Folks, I can't speak to the veracity of the Constitution of the United States, but in the same language that's used of this, doesn't this evolve? Because it's living, which means it's applicable to all of our contexts, that there isn't any context in which we find ourselves in, it. this scripture does not direct into that, Okay evolving the way, the way it's used culturally is it changes as we change. And folks, you cannot define God by the culture in which we sit. Every single culture believes they're in the best culture, right? The most enlightened, the smartest, every culture is going to believe that until they don't. And they go looking for a new one. Even though our culture runs in the background and now this postmodern culture affects you just like it affects me. I don't care how old you are. This postmodern context affects the way you see and hear things. It's always running in your background. But, but we, as it relates to God's word, we can use God's word as the, the small end of the binoculars that looks out further and brings clarity to the things that are at a distance. Or we can turn the binoculars upside down and read scripture through the big lens of culture and it's gonna look so far away and so discontented and so disconnected that we won't pick it up, all right? So context is always important to scripture and you can't, you can't neglect your context and how you get brought into that. But God's word is a story of a loving, redemptive, relationally connected God who doesn't give up on his children even in their ignorance and rebellion. Amen to that? 
It is a story of a God who finished what he started and is finishing what he started. We, we live in between ages. We believe in what's called the, we live in what's called the already and not yet. God's love has dawned in Christ. It has dawned in Christ. We live in the kingdom here in this world, and yet there's still more to come. The, 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 the creation story and the story of the fall. We don't get far into Genesis. You only get to Genesis 3 before God introduces the redemption to the fall. And he speaks about, <laughs> Revelation speaks about the, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Um, God speaks to Adam and Eve and to the enemy, and he says this, in 3.15, I will put enmity, open hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed. Now notice, is it this way there? Okay. Now this is out of the NIV. I don't know how other versions do it, but seed here is capitalized. He shall fatally bruise your head and you shall only bruise his heel. His is capitalized. I, I grew up when you use pronouns about God or anything related to God, you capitalize it. Apparently now it doesn't happen that way. Even when I was writing my book, my editor said, hey, listen, they don't do this anymore. But, uh, authors don't capitalize the references to God. I went, well, okay, thank you for, for that input, but um, I'm going to. And, and, and it wasn't trying to make some, any huge statement. It was a little statement built on a huge fact, okay? And so, and so he starts already this redemptive process as far back as Genesis. Then we learn, we learn more from his word, right? We learn that from David, it says, he is, it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So this word then, it seems like David is really saying that this is the precepts to live by, right? But David also is the one that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and say, I explained it to someone like this in, in the hallway. Um, and and it's, they're, they're, a, they're a new believing family, um, literally left New Jersey and the, and, and the despondence with, a, the, 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 with Catholicism and land here in the Southeast. And I guess you go to church in Southeast or you're looking for something. And um, anyway, they have their own story. But I just said, he just said, I'm crying now. He said, I've never cried. We have an ability to make people cry at Gateway. We just have always had that ability to make people cry. Uh, maybe because I cry. So um, I said, it, when David says, taste and see that the Lord is good, he said, the more you taste good stuff, the more you want that stuff. Amen. Right? You just you kind of you know, want more of it. Taste and see. In fact, when God speaks to Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel, to, when he tells him to prophesy to Israel, he tells him to eat the scroll. I want you to eat this scroll. And I don't think it was metaphor because then Ezekiel says it tasted like honey. He eats the scroll of the Lord and it tastes like honey. So he ingests God in order to speak to others about God. It is an internal thing. Um, in John chapter six, Jesus is teaching a large group of people and he says this, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part in me, no part in me okay, there's a showstopper, right? And it says that a number of the followers, the fo and he said followers, not just the people that gathered in the crowd. The number of his followers left and said, this is too much for us. This is too difficult. He turns to Peter. What about you, Peter? He said, oh, where else would we go? Who else has the words of life? Right? And so, so this, is an internal, this is an internal thing. Uh, Paul breaks it out. Deeper in Colossians 1.27, he said, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I say, it's the Christ you believe in. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives 
in me, in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. A rock-solid faith is more than a faith in someone. It is a faith that, that someone lives in me or lives in us. It is starkly different than just a belief system. Um, we can't distill God's words away from his person. When you look at the foundational scripture that we've used, Jesus starts out by saying, ask for everyone who comes to me, hears my word, puts them into practice. I will show you who they were like. All right? These are all present tense Greek verbs, which mean that this is not a one and done. This is an ongoing repeated process, okay? So, he said, so we, can, we can distill from that that Christianity is relationally anchored. We're, we're, we're anchored in the person of God, the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given so that we could see Jesus who helps us see the Father, all right? So we're invited to repeatedly come to Christ through his word. We're invited repeatedly to listen to his word intently. Listen doesn't imply um, hearing what someone said. The implication is to, to it, it become a part of you, all right? Um, we all know the difference between hearing and listening, right? If you're married, you know this, <laughs> right? So this morning, Gina wasn't feeling well. I heard her say, go on without me. That's what I heard her say. About four miles down the road, my phone rings. You left me. I didn't leave you. You told me, you told me to go on ahead of you that you weren't feeling well. No, that's, that's, that's not what I said. What I said was, can you give me 10 minutes before you leave to see if I can go with you? Now, she did not say that. Right? This is the progressive commercial, right? This is the red flag. We're going to do the replay on this thing here. But listen, being married this year will be 33 years. What I did was I said, well, I'm not that far away. I'll come back and get you. So when I got, to, and so I pick her up and we're going back to the church. And when I got to the place, I turned around. I told her, this is where I was. She said, you didn't tell me the truth. You were a whole lot further down the road than you, well, that's our own marital problem there. I want to get there. All right, so we're invited, we're invited to come to Christ boldly. We come to him, right? When I open this up, I'm coming to him. I got a lot of books sitting on my nightstand. I got plenty of books sitting in my office. I got books where I am, books are. But they're all different than this one. When I open this one, I'll tell you this one. I'm not, I'm not going to meet the author when I go into this one. I want to know what the author says. I want to interact with how the author thinks, but I am not going to this author. When I pick this up, oh, this is a whole different ballgame. This is a completely different context, right? So I, I, can't allow, I can't allow a secular context to dictate how I come to this word, okay? And it all operates, all right? And then when I pick this up, there are three different contexts in which I pick this up, and all three of them matter. In fact, scientists call, um, call it habit stacking. There's a phrase now called habit, behavioral scientists, habit stacking. And the more you can stack habits, the more they stick. 
So it stands to reason to me if there's three different contexts in which to engage God in, with his word, then I will be best off when I can have it stack all of those times, right? Make sense? So here's the first one. Well, here's all three. Um, I call them this, personal connection, group interaction, congregational worship. These are the three contexts where I can engage God's word. Personal connection, group interaction, and congregational worship. Psalm 1, David gives us this very poetic description of what it's like if we will sit and meditate on God's word by ourselves. Here it is out of the Amplified. He said, blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the man, woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked following their advice and example nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit down to rest in the seat of scoffers, ridiculers. But his and her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, his precepts, his teachings, he habitually meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted and fed by streams of water. Notice in, in Luke 7, we're, we're grounded, we're grounded. And here, this, this, this implication here is we live by. It gives us life. All right, streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever it does, it prospers and comes to maturity. The wicked, those who live in disobedience, so to God's law, so keep it apart, are not so, but they are like the chaff, worthless and without substance, which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand unpunished in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows and fully approves the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish." The word of God is life-giving, it's life-refreshing, it's life-sustaining, and I will engage it individually, just me in the word, it brings those kind of life. I remember the first time that I um, decided to methodically and systematically go through the Bible, it was my senior in high school, I was a senior in high school, and it was going to be a big year, and so I remember going, I want to do something different this year. Now, you know, I was raised, I was raised in church. But somewhere along the age of 17, things started sticking. And so that year was the year I decided I was going to read through the New Testament through, um, through my senior year. So every morning at the kitchen table, I read my Bible before I went to school. And I think about it. When I look back over that year, some significant things happened to me in that year. That was the year that I, that I cemented. I heard and believed God called me into pastoral ministry that year. I chose the college that I was going to go to that year. Those are significant choices and those were influenced. They were influenced because I was in the word. Um, I believe that when I'm in, when I'm the context, the personal context with me in this Bible also provides me a spiritual covering. So it gives me spiritual direction, but I also believe it gives me spiritual covering. David said this in Psalm 119. How can a young man, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? by living according to your word. I seek with you all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Read, when we read the word, me in the word, you in the word, it is, it is a process of hiding that word in my heart. I wrote this. Rote memorization is for test taking. Ingesting is for life transformation. I'm not just trying to memorize it to memorize it. I want to ingest it and some things will stick. And when the word sticks, it is a covering. It is a protective spiritual covering over you. The, you will not end a day 
when you aren't being pulled in one direction or another away from the path of God or the ways of God. There won't be a day you live without culture trying to dictate what you do, what you choose, how you decide, what decisions you make, right? What are you going to say, not say, do not do? You're not going to, we are immersed in this culture, okay? So this is going to take place. So when I am in the word myself, just me, I hide this word so it's a spiritual covering. Now, I, I likened it to this in the first service. So I can be covered... I can be covered this way. I mean, this beats the alternative, right? I mean, I'm covered this way. Or I may cover this way. Now, I mean, this is okay. I mean, to me, this is like verse of the day. <laughs> I do the verse of the day. I, I don't hardly ever do a day without the U version verse of the day. Right? In my mom and dad's time, it was a little, it was a little um, plastic thing of, um, it looked like a piece of bread, a loaf of bread. It was a little plastic. Can anybody go back to these memories? And it was day, the daily, your daily bread, right? Loved it. Fantastic. Um, I, somewhere along the age of seven, um, exited um, the life so simple that I didn't need this. Right? So, anyway, that's... Um, it's a great umbrella, by the way. I really, I really, I really love that umbrella. If I can <laughs> tell, tell the worship team they don't trip over it when they come back up here. All right. So that's, that's, a, that's a personal context. My personal context with the word. Personal connection got through the word. Here's the second. Group interaction. Um, at the end of Acts 2, we read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe and at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Kind of still big group gathering. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Big gathering. But then it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That context to me has always jumped out. That there were large numbers of people that were changed because there was a smaller, there were smaller groups of people. That there was the kind of transformation that was taking place that people outside of that circle looked and said, I want some of that. So so they might have been drawn to the big gathering, but you don't see the transformation in the big gathering, folks. You see the transformation across from a table. What I have found about in in small groups, in small group study or, or gathering, is that like the core context of scripture won't change. But how you have uh interacted in your context with that word broadens the context for me. Does that make sense to you? That you don't, you're not changing, you don't change the word. I don't all of a sudden go, oh, I didn't know it said that. But your life experience connected with that passage of scripture and then my life experience connected that passage of scripture. Well, now 
our understanding of how God works broadens because I have your context now interacting with my context. Context always matter. The layering of context widen the foundation of understanding and deepen and deepens the conviction for practicing. Because when I see something that you interacted with and changed you, gosh, I want that. I want that. Now I know that that's there. I want that. Also, group interaction provides space for testimony. Overcomers have testimonies, and testimonies, testimonies fuel overcoming. Revelation 12, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies and not loving their life unto death. When I'm in a group context, your testimony can be transformative to me. Help me overcome. My testimony, overcoming you. Those things do not happen in big group settings. They happen in smaller contexts. All right, um, it, we, we started a group called Men with Men three, four, seven groups. And um, it, it's, it's really difficult to follow the train of thought. So, so follow me while we named it that way. Three men for seven weeks. It's, it's, really, it's really complicated. Um, you have to understand men's ministry. Men's ministry can't be complicated. <laughs> all, all, all of the direction for those groups is on one single sheet of paper, just the front, right? So what it is, three men together around one passage of scripture seven different times. We take one passage one week, another passage, these are foundational passages of scripture, but three men around a table looking at that. There's like 18 or 20 groups going on right now with men like this. This stuff is transformed. That's another way we engage. Here's the, the third way we engage is through congregational worship. Congregational. How is the word different in this setting? Well, scripture makes a differentiation between preaching and teaching. Um, I like to think I teach. I like to teach. I enjoy teaching, but I've had the opportunity to teach kind of in a professional academic setting, and I've preached in this setting, and if I had to choose one over the other, it wouldn't be the other, All right? Because in that teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching for, uh, I, I want to know that you, they're understanding what I'm teaching, and how do I do that? How do I how do prove that? Because oh, they get tested on that. They're tested on that, and do they want to test them on this, and do they, and then poor grades, and it always made me feel poor, <laughs> right? Now, um, but good preaching to me is preaching that challenges ways of thinking. It illuminates the subject, but good preaching goes to the head and the heart. The Greek word is kerygma. The kerygma is what you use as the word used in reference to preaching. And it is the proclamation of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. It carries the heart of the gospel, that we are a fallen humanity. We fell. And if you don't believe that we fell, then, it's, then you can't believe that one man came to die for all of us. So I, I, for, for me to believe one man can die for all of us, I gotta believe because of one man's sin, I sinned. And so there was sin, I'm caught up in it. But then there's a savior. The savior doesn't cancel me, that's our culture. Our culture is, yeah, you can have your own opinion, but if it doesn't agree with my opinion, then I'm gonna write you off. There is no redemption in our culture, folks, but people want redemption. This is redemption. 
God brings redemption. And uniquely in a preaching context, that redemption story gets told in a manner that the Holy Spirit does something unique with that I can't explain. I can't explain how after a certain Sunday morning, someone would come up to me and say, wow, this is what, this is what God did. This is, this is what God's doing in me. And then I can talk to someone else and then tell me the same thing about something different that happened in that worship service. It's almost like I didn't preach one message. I preached 200 messages. That's what the Holy Spirit does in this context. He has the ability to take any element of a congregational worship service and drive something directly straight home into your heart. And that's, it's not that he can't do that in these other settings, but there is something unique. In fact, Paul called, he didn't call preaching foolishness. Um, You can read it that way. And I've I've been, I've been called a fool before, but, but what's foolishness is the message of the charisma, the message of the gospel. This is what's foolishness. The foolishness that one man died so that we could live. And Paul says, to those who don't believe it, they're perishing. To those who believe it, it's life. And that's the gospel. And God has has made us and made himself, I can't explain it, but these are the contexts that you can see all through scripture of how we engage God. We engage, engage engage God personally, on our own. We can engage God in smaller groups. We can engage God in corporate settings. And the question that I had was really, are you leaving any money on the table? Because these are three ways in which we habit stack. And when I miss out on one of these three, we miss some dimension of relationship that's available. Bad people, you're not less than. It's just, there's more, what I tell you, that that you can, um, there's always more to know about God. And we can have as much God as we want. How much do we want? The postmodern culture reduces the Bible to being lost in space, but it's down to earth. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus came in the flesh. The message says, and he moved into the neighborhood. The postmodern context calls the Bible hate-filled, not love offering. And yet John 3.16 says that Jesus, that God gave. It was God's love that gave. The postmodern context will tell you that, that the, this Bible is tribal. It's tribal. It's directed at a small group of people, that it's not universal. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 7 that everyone who seeks will find. Everyone who asks will be answered. Everyone who knocks, it will be open to them. Our postmodern context tells us the scripture is restrictive. It's restrictive. It's not freeing. And yet Jesus tells them himself in Luke 4 that he came to set the captive free. We can build an out-of-box faith. How you receive Christ is how you will share Christ. You get that? How you receive Christ is how you will share Christ. And God is inviting you to a much wider, much wider experience with him. Much wider, much deeper. 
I love when Paul says he, he prays that they would grasp how long, how wide, how deep is the love of God, right? And then he goes on to say how it's, you can't understand it. And I thought that's always seems silly to me that he's praying to grasp something that can't be completely grasped. And then part of me got at one time is that it's wide enough, long enough, and deep enough for where I am right now. And you know what? Tomorrow it's gonna to be wide enough, long enough, and deep enough for that day. There, there, is, there is no extent to the width, depth, height, and breadth of God. And he is inviting us into all of that. So you see how when I, when I let the rest of my world dictate what I do, I grab a little verse of the day here. I grab a congregational worship service once in a while there. Uh, I'll do a group if it's convenient. That we, we're leaving stuff on the table. We're, we're, we're leaving the life-giving relationships of the word and others. We're leaving on the table. And I get it. I live in the same world you do. I get the same knocks and clamors and do this and do that and go here and do, you know, it happens to all of us. Um, questioning why this world is so messed up and if God was God, why wouldn't he do something about it? We all live in this context, but we can't allow the culture to dictate how we view God because there's so much more of God he wants to show all of us. Um, in this book I'm reading, uh, John Mark, Mark Coomer called Practicing the Way. And in essence, the next series I'm starting with, we're calling it Wearing Dust wearing us, walking in the life-changing ways of Christ, right? So Christ, there was a way in which Christ walked. He did more than just tell stories. He illustrated who he was through stories, but there was a way about Jesus. In fact, early followers were called followers of the way, right? So interesting, he, he, he writes this on, and the reason why I don't have it in my notes in here is because I read it last night. Uh, page 161, he says, we all have a rule of life. We all have a rule of life, okay? And he says, a rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, become like him and do as he did as we live in alignment with our deepest desires. It's a way of intentionally organizing our lives around what matters most, God. We all have a rule of life. The question is, will God be the rule? And if you've been around here any length of time, you know I'm not the pastor that continually tells you to do more, do this, do more, do this, do more, do this. Um, I grew up under that and it didn't work well with me. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't minister out of that context. But I do believe in showing you and trying my best to set a table to say, there is still more. And he is right there wanting to give it more. And one of the ways he's done that, we've talked about a bunch of them. Last week was worship. Today is the word. Those are the contexts we live in. These are the contexts which he's given us to receive this word. Your context and my context help one another. Set a time, grab a group, raise your engagement on a Sunday morning. I'm not talking about raise your engagement necessarily of just being here as much as I'm saying that we walk in here. This is an opportunity it's an opportunity for God to speak in a very unique way to us. And I know personally, I wanna raise my expectation level when I come in here. See, it would be real easy for me, right, to check a box, right? I mean, it really would. I know how many hours it takes to prepare a sermon. 
I know what elements a sermon needs to connect. I know the minimum time I need to spend in prayer so I don't feel like an idiot when I stand up in front of you. I know all, I know all those little formulas. I've been doing this a long time. But what brings life is our open heart to receive from the Father the love of His Son and the direction and power of His Spirit. And that's available to us each time we gather here on a Sunday morning. Raise our expectation. Raise our engagement. Father, I believe your Spirit has spoken. I believe you are a God who draws. You have this insatiable desire to engage your children. You have this insatiable desire to pull those, as David would say, out of the, out of the deep mire onto solid footing. And that you have the ability to reach us in whatever context we find ourselves. Lord, I pray for the man or woman in the room today that, have, that, is, that they're holding you at arm's length. They so desperately want to believe that some of this stuff is true and yet they have not yet surrendered their life. They have yet to say, I want to try it. And I pray today, Lord, that that would be the case. Lord, I don't know what you're speaking to all of us today. I just know you're speaking. And so in these last moments of movement, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, you would solidify, you would solidify your word that you've spoken today in the hearts and minds of those here in this room, those watching online today. Amen. So, you know, I, you've, you've, I've made it cliche around here, it seems, when I say movement matters. Um, the last part of our service is always about engagement and movement. And we've been very, very intentional around this, right? So we've set aside this side of an altar that if you want to engage with God outside of your seat, outside that particular place, but you, you, wanna, you wanna move um, and solidify something with God here that you can do this by yourself right here. We've designated that side of the altar, that if you need someone to come alongside of you and pray with you today, you need to borrow faith from someone. As soon as you walk to this side of the altar, there are people ready to and have been prepared and praying to do that, that we receive. We are not a Catholic church, but we, but we offer communion every single Sunday. Why? Because this is the blood and body of Christ. It is a sacrament that we ingest. It, it, is, it is something that God did so that we would see and understand. We take it corporately, but it's always available uh, on my left and right, each given service. This is a time where we just try to engage in this last minute. We move because I believe movement anchors things that God's doing inside of us in the spirit. So stand with me. Father, again, in this moment, Lord, drive home, drive home in each of us what needs to take root. In the name of Jesus, I pray. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.